Many of you, I'm sure, are getting together with various people later in the day to celebrate Mother's Day. So let me just extend from the pulpit our appreciation for the moms among us. We love you so much. We, uh, we wouldn't he- be here without you. So we uh, thank you. We hope you have a wonderful day today. For the last time, this is our study in the Gospel of Luke. We began this study the first week of Advent the year 2016, and we now come to a close after Easter 2019. So we thank God for his, uh, his providence and allowing us to learn from his word week after week through this wonderful gospel. Hopefully you have found it enriching. Hopefully you know a lot about Luke that you didn't know uh, before and God's word. Hopefully you love Christ more than you did when we begun, when we began. So let us then turn then to this final passage in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. I suppose I should go there in my own Bible if I want to read it, huh? Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading, knowing that he builds his people up through it. Luke 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God endures forever. It's the challenge of society in each and every culture to figure out how you channel the strength and aggression of boys and men into the the common good. This past week we saw it, a couple of the shootings that happened this past week, I believe in uh, in Charlotte and Colorado, there were uh, young men who intervened used their strength to uh, certainly lessen the effects of these shootings. Wonderful display of, of bravery 
actually a, a confirmation of God's common grace. But we've seen, especially in, in recent months and weeks, on the other side of the trigger, young men whose strength and aggression has been channeled in very dangerous ways. And uh, one hit rather close to home in recent weeks, the one that was in San Diego County, a young man who went into a synagogue and opened fire, tragically killing one, though thankfully it was not more than that. This was a young man who was a member of the church that actually meets on the campus of my seminary. This is a church where Michelle and I have uh, worshipped many times. In all likelihood, we have sat in the, the presence of this young man. And we see in, in many ways how society is, is struggling to, to keep these dangerous ideas and ideologies um, away from the minds of, of young men who get in their minds that they will do such a thing. And one of the things that was very frustrating and, and uh, lamentable for me was as the, the news was carrying this story, and of course it became a big story because of the background of this young man, raised in the church, Christian, evangelical church, and he ends up doing something like this. What was wrong? Was there something? And, and it was uh, suggested many times that what actually was deficient was what he was hearing from the pulpit. And just if I could speak personally, this pastor has had perhaps more influence on me than almost anyone else save my father in terms of preaching and teaching the word of God. This is a church where Christ from all scripture for all people is proclaimed without apology week after week that the grace of God is to be proclaimed to the world that God might save sinners. So there was a sense in which I was taking offense to all of that and saddened by some of the coverage that I saw. But you wonder, uh, what goes on inside of the mind of a young man to do such a thing? Anti-Semitism, hates towards people who are different. Ethnic or racial supremacy, as it is known in our world, really comes mostly out of Darwinism in the 19th and 20th centuries. The idea of different races, because we have evolved in different ways, that's where that mindset comes from. And the survival of the fittest is the idea that certain races have evolved in ways that are better than others so they can exercise dominance over other people groups. The Bible in contrast to that, teaches us that all human beings are made in the image of God. The Bible teaches us that we all come from one human pair, the same human pair, Adam and Eve. This is where we find human dignity. It's also where we find human sinfulness. The Bible teaches us that human beings are of equal dignity and honor in the sight of God. They're all image bearers of God, and they all come from Adam. And also because of that, that means we share in the inheritance of our sinfulness. That first sin of the Garden of Eden is something that has been passed down even from the first human pair. The glory of the Gospel of Luke is that the second Adam is our remedy for our common sinfulness. The second Adam, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, shows us here as the Gospel of Luke winds down that Jesus was the plan all along. That Jesus is the culmination of God's plan. That all of the promises of God, all of the prophecies of God find their yes and amen in him. And this Christ is to be proclaimed in every corner of the globe. Red, yellow, black, and white. That they may trust in the Savior and may know him 
savingly and may have eternal life. This band of apostles, the few, the happy few, this band of brothers will go into all the world to proclaim this good news. The worldwide mission of the church really finds its home base here at the end of the Gospel of Luke because it sets the stage for the book of Acts that that message might go out from Jerusalem to every corner of the globe. And the, the commission to the church stays the same. Though it's given here to the 11 apostles, that that commission stays the same, and it is this. And so this is the charge given to us as we finish down the Gospel of Luke. Until Christ comes again, we are to preach and proclaim Jesus from all the scriptures to all people in the power of the Spirit, worshiping Christ as we do it. Until he comes again, we are to preach and proclaim Christ in all the scriptures to all people in the power of the Spirit, worshiping Christ as we do it. First, as we see in this passage, the risen Jesus seems too good to be true. He seems too good to be true. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, has been giving us pictures of biblical faith. What does it mean to trust in the risen Christ? What does it mean to have faith in him? And oftentimes he's contrasting what we see with our eyes and what we see with our hearts. But in this passage, the emphasis is going to be that the 11 who will be commissioned out, sent into all the world, they are eyewitnesses of the reality of Christ. As they go out to proclaim the gospel, calling people to biblical faith, trust in the Jesus whom I cannot show to you physically. That's what the apostles are going to say. I have seen him. I am an eyewitness of all of these things. And so, as he disappeared last week, he appears this week, in this week's passage, just as quickly as he disappeared last week. He appears in the midst of them. As they are talking about, with the two disciples whom Jesus met on the road to Emmaus, they're talking about, it's true, he has appeared to Simon. Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. We should not move too quickly over this, the fact that this is how Jesus greets these people, these 11. The first thing he says is peace. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about Jesus' greeting here. He says, this was a wonderful saying when we consider the men to whom it was addressed It was addressed to 11 disciples who three days before had shamefully forsaken their master and fled. They had broken their promises. They had forgotten their professions of readiness to die for their faith. They had been scattered each to his own and left their master to die alone. One of them had even denied him three times. All of them had proven backsliders and cowards. And yet behold the return which their master makes to his disciples Not a word of rebuke is spoken. Not a single sharp saying falls from his lips. Calmly and quietly he appears in the midst of them and begins by speaking peace. Peace be unto you. It's perhaps not an overstatement to say that this is something that will characterize all of the church until Christ comes again. What do we do? We proclaim peace. None of the eleven deserved this peace. They had not merited it. They had not earned it through their righteousness. They could not stand before God and say, proclaim to me peace. Many people might say Jesus had scores to settle with many of them. 
This is the ultimate vindication or opportunity for revenge moment. I've defeated death. You didn't stand with me, but he comes not with malice. He comes with peace. And this is indeed why he died on the cross, to grant peace to sinners, just as he does here with the apostles. He's saying the battle has been fought. The the victory has been won. He has accomplished all that is needed for salvation. And he says, look to me, trust in me, and I can grant peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace is to rule in our lives and our hearts. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. If you are set at peace with the God of the universe and set at peace with the God of the universe through the work of his only begotten son who went through the throes of death and hell and he grants you peace, Shouldn't that peace rule your hearts? They're having trouble embracing all of this. There's a hesitancy in their inner persons that is holding back from really embracing the reality of the moment here. And they're even kept back from from realizing fully that this is Jesus. They don't see that it's Jesus. They don't see that he's in a real body. Or they think he's not in a real body. And that's what Jesus addresses in this next section. To show them that it is a real body, but it's that it is a spiritual body, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our text says they thought they saw a ghost, in other words, just a disembodied person. But he has a body, and that's what he aims to show them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul speaks of the resurrection body, how there's continuity but discontinuity with our earthly mortal bodies, which is from the dust, as Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, The earthly body is sown in dishonor, being put into the ground. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. Right? We, we, we can't avoid death. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And Jesus wants to show them that even though it's spiritual, even though it's a body of resurrection, it has flesh and bone, though it is different than the mortal body that they inhabit now. So he says, touch me, touch me. See for yourself, see the the wounds in my hands and my feet. Indeed, this uh, imperative that he gives to them, touch me, this is what 1 John picks up on in chapter 1, where he highlights for us this idea of being an eyewitness of Christ. And the authority with which he can proclaim the gospel because he is an eyewitness and was an eyewitness of the work of Jesus. And so he says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have touched with our hands. Which we have touched with our hands. And then John goes on to say, we proclaim it to you. We proclaim it to you. He proclaims it with an authority because he's an eyewitness. Christ. They struggle, though. I love the way that the translations kind of wrestle with this phrase of of disbelieving for joy in verse 41. They still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. Some translations just say disbelieving for joy, which is a a wonderful little phrase. You ever watch those shows on 
probably HGTV or something where there's a family in need, maybe they have a handicapped member of the family or a particular set of needs because of a, of a circumstance, and a crew will come in, they'll sort of revamp the whole house, make it state-of-the-art, make it perfectly tailored to all of their unique needs, and the best part of those shows, really all that I'm interested in, I could fast-forward to the very end where they just walk through, let me see the finished product, and let me see their reaction. And oftentimes, what are people saying? This is too good to be true. I, I don't, I'm afraid to fully believe it in the off chance that I'm dreaming or some kind of trick is being played on me. In a much larger way, this is what the apostles here are thinking. It's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. I, I'm afraid to believe it on the off chance I'm being tricked or something. The faithful and pious Jew believed in the resurrection, but what they believed about it was that it, it happened sort of a linear fashion. This age would come to an end, then there would be a resurrection of the dead, and then it would be the age to come. So the idea of resurrection life, eternal life, coming into this age, in a sense intruding upon this age, would have been completely foreign to their minds. But that's what Jesus has done here. He has brought life and hope Literally from the future. He has brought it from the future into the present. He gives us here the foundation for the Christian mindset of the already and the not yet. Which is that tension that Christians live with. We have an already and a not yet tension. There is a resurrection life and hope. There is a a present enjoyment of future blessing. It's in the present and it is not yet brought to the consummation. I love the way one theologian puts it, that we do not merely have a hope in the future. We have a hope from the future. We have a hope from the future given to us in the resurrection life of Christ, in the life that he enjoys, the reign that he enjoys in heaven now, and in the spirit, which is, as we read in Romans 5, poured into our hearts. The love of God is poured into our hearts, the present enjoyment of future blessing. He gives them a second proof here simply by eating. Some scholars have wrestled with is Luke going back to this theme of shared meals, this dining with the king. It's a little bit tricky. I'm not quite settled on whether or not Luke is doing that here, that Jesus, the risen Jesus, is sharing a meal with them because all it says is that he takes a piece of fish and he eats it. There probably isn't enough textual clues for us to conclude that Luke is wanting us to see this as a fully shared meal. But it's a second proof to them that he has a flesh and bone body, though it is a resurrection body. Too good to be true. Secondly, Jesus is central and his word is sufficient. Jesus is central and his word is sufficient. He moves from the the eyewitness theme to teaching about his word. It's interesting in verse 44 where Jesus teaches them everything, uh, who I am and what I have done, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalm. That is the only time in all of the New Testament that that categorization of all the Old Testament occurs together. Now, sometimes it'll be put differently, like in the last passage, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. But the only time that this official delineation of the categories of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, is the only time it occurs. So Luke is very clearly emphasizing to us the centrality of Jesus, and he is the key to all of Scripture. 
He's the key to all of Scripture. It is about Him. It is about Him. Every promise finds their yes and amen in Him. Every anguish named for us in the Scriptures finds its solace and comfort in Him. Every prophecy finds its fulfillment in Him. In the already and not yet, the cross, the resurrection, it's all about Jesus. He's the key. There's two reasons for that, really. At least two. I'll name two of them. I'm sure there are many, many, many more. But two for today. The first is devotion. Jesus wants to show his apostles, he wants to show us that the scriptures are about him, that we might grow in love and devotion to Christ, that we might love him more, that we might be trained with eyes so that when we go to the scriptures, when we go to God's holy and infallible word, we know that we are reading the book that is about Jesus. He wants us to work. To, to, to work to know him more that we might grow in our love and devotion. Samuel Rutherford, well-known Puritan author, he says this, I urge upon you a nearer communion with Christ than a growing communion. There are curtains to be drawn by in Christ that we never saw, new foldings of love in him. I despair that ever I shall win to the far end of that love. There are so many plies in it, therefore dig deep and sweat and labor. Take pains for him and set by so much time in the day for him as you can. He will be one with labor. It's interesting to think about today on, on Mother's Day how women can stare into the face of something as scary perhaps as the labor of childbirth. But you, you wonder about the love that a mother has for a newborn child and knowing what is at the other end of that anguish. And Rutherford pushes to us the same, the, the, a reality that is like that in Christ. Labor to know him. Work for it. Sweat. And love him more. Devotion is the first. Proclamation is the second. Jesus wants to fill his people with Christ-centeredness so that they might proclaim the gospel of grace and it might be a proclamation of Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim. Ultimately, any time that the apostles had the opportunity to speak, you would know, you can be certain, that somehow, some way, they would get to the story of redemption in Jesus Christ. Him we proclaim. That's Jesus' point. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures, and he says, since you now understand it, proclaim it. You are witnesses. Since you understand it, go forth and proclaim it. Proclaiming Christ, proclaiming redemption, faith and repentance in him. That is to be the mode of the church and the mode of her proclamation. So today is no different. Today is no different. I urge all of you, give yourselves. For the first time, for the thousandth time, whatever it is, give yourselves in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. Remember God's promise to you in the gospel. Remember God's promise to you in your baptism. Remember God's promise to you in the sacrament of the supper that you can be sure that your redemption is finished in Christ. Trust in him. Repent of your sin. Look away from yourself. And look to the Savior. Look to the Savior. The great comfort in all of this and seeing Christ in all of the scriptures and seeing God's ability to weave together and to give us a book, a perfect book 
that all points to Jesus over many centuries and many, many authors to bring all of this together. The great assurance of this passage is, isn't it obvious to us that if God can do all of that, he can accomplish your salvation? If God can do all of that, he can save sinners. He can bring you home to him. That's the great assurance of this passage. We see not only the centrality of Christ, we see the sufficiency of the scriptures. The sufficiency of the scriptures. You think Jesus, the risen Christ, the one who is about to enter his glory, what would he spend his time doing? He spends his time opening the minds of his followers to his word. And we can't miss that. You need to see the way in which the sufficiency of the scriptures is emphasized here. He says, go and tell the world about me, but do it from the scriptures. Do it with an understanding of my word. This is the word that God has given to his people. They had had it for centuries. And Jesus says, I want you to take this, that which you already had, and go into all the world to proclaim forgiveness and grace and salvation. This is the word that God will use to convert, to convict, to comfort, to build up. To convict, to convert, to comfort, to build up. A church that is founded and ready for gospel ministry and kingdom growth will make every decision based upon the foundational conviction that the church lives and moves and breathes and grows off of God's speaking, not upon man's ideas, strategies off of God speaking in his word. That is how the church is built up. It's useful. It's authoritative. It's perfect. Timothy says, or for 2 Timothy says this. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, continue in what you have learned. Those sacred writings, the scriptures that you have known from your infancy. He says, continue in those and preach those. And then he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. The Greek word there is theopneustos, which is just a beautiful word, God-breathed. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Another pastor whom I greatly respect and admire likens this breathing out to when a, a little child realizes that he or she can sort of blow out onto a window and carve his or her name into the steam, the fog there, and then, of course, parents scold them because... Got to clean up after that, right? But it's breathing and inscribing your name on that glass. Paul says that the scriptures are like the very breath of God. And here's what we need to know. Here, here is the, the foundational conviction that we need to have as biblical Christians. Can a perfect God, can a God who is perfect and cannot lie, breathe out a word that is imperfect and filled with lies? No, of course not. Can a God who is power and action and life itself breathe out a word that is not powerful and not active and not life-giving? No, he cannot. He gives us his word to proclaim Christ in all things. It's inerrant, it's infallible, and it is sufficient. It's sufficient. But it's sufficient as he reminds us The power of the Spirit, the Spirit who works and acts in the midst of the proclamation of the word. And so Jesus reminds them, wait, I am going to send you that which was promised 
to you. Very clearly the Spirit. You can see how Luke uh, weaves all of this together in Acts 1 through 4. And the number of times that he emphasizes the promise, the promise, the promise, the Spirit. So that God's people, the apostles specifically in this passage, might reverse the direction of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke has all been about getting to Jerusalem. Getting to Jerusalem so that that central act of redemption, the the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ and Pentecost might happen, might occur, and that direction might be reversed into Jerusalem and now out to the very corners of the globe, to the ends of the earth. He says, preach and proclaim to all people, to all people, to everyone. Everyone, of every stripe, of every tribe, and every corner of the globe. Because God has delighted and he has seen fit from all eternity that his covenant people should not be confined to one nation, but should be made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, from every corner of the globe. It takes the apostles a little while to understand this, doesn't it? takes them a little while. It's not that they are to go through the world and find Israelites to whom they can proclaim the Messiah. No, they go through all the world and they proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to all who hear it. And this is really spoken of in the Old Testament quite beautifully. Think even of our our call to worship this morning. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. Psalm 67, perhaps one of the best psalms that shows this to us. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? So that your way may be known on the earth and your saving power among the nations. May God bless us. May God show grace to us. May God grow us so that his saving power might be known through the world might be known throughout all of the world. Let the nations be glad, it says. Let the nations be glad. Let them sing for joy. So Christ says, go and proclaim me from all the scriptures. Go in the power of the Spirit. Go and proclaim it to the nations. This is the great blessing of hope to the nations, that We can be grafted onto the tree of God's covenant people and his covenant promises. Romans 11, that wonderful picture that Paul gives to us, grafted onto the olive tree. That that message that Jesus proclaims to his sinful apostles who have abandoned him and not made good on their promises to him. He says, peace be with you. That is the message that is to be proclaimed until Christ comes again. You can have peace with God and forego the final judgment understand and know that God can save you from your condemnation if you trust in Christ. He grants peace. He grants peace to those who trust in him. And he creates peace among his people. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. In Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. He is our peace. He has abolished the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And he has made peace. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and you who are near. This is one of the reasons that it was such a tragedy a few weeks ago when this young man filled with anti-Semitism and and hate would go and, and do something that's so contrary to what the church is called to do, to preach and proclaim Christ, offering peace to a world that is at enmity with God, that they might be saved from their sin. So contrary to the word of God. 
Not only anti-Semitism, but that which is called racism, ethnic superiority, all these things are to be gone in Christ. To be gone in Christ. And what does God call us to do? To go forth, to preach and proclaim. Very few of us would be here today if it weren't for the fact that the apostles eventually obeyed the call of Christ here to go into all the world, to go to all of the nations and proclaim Christ to the very ends of the earth. This is the commission that is given to the, that is given to the church even now. And we bear it collectively. Proclaim him from all scriptures to all people in the power of the Spirit. It's a collective effort. So we need to understand at least a couple of things. There's a responsibility among all people of the church. As First Peter chapter 3 says, you must be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. As you bear this redemption in Christ and you walk through this life with it, Peter says, be ready. You can think about even the, the, the way that, that the people who interact with Jesus in the Gospels do this. Many of them are, are not speaking eloquently or able to give this well-thought-out, well-drawn-out uh, defense of Christ. But what do they say? They say, come and see. Come and see Jesus. And that is what people in the church are to do. I'm saved from my sin. I know he's my savior. Come and see. Come and see. Talk to one of our members this week who was able to have this wonderful little, little conversation, fairly simple, talking about Jesus, talking about forgiveness of sin. The person with whom he's speaking said, you're speaking to my heart. You're speaking to my heart. All of these things about forgiveness. And he just says, come and see. Come and see. I go to a church where Christ is proclaimed and the gospel is preached. Come and see. It finds its ultimate fulfillment in the public ministry, uh, the public proclamation of the word, our voices that join together to proclaim this glory of Christ, even as we sing praises to God, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, help me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. It's a commission given to the church in Luke, it's a commission that stays with the church to preach and proclaim Christ from all the scriptures. Jesus is enough, as we close. He is enough. He gives them a benediction. Right? Jesus has greeted them with grace and peace and forgiveness. He sends them out with confidence and joy and assurance. It's quite the benediction, isn't it? Quite the benediction. He, he gives them the benediction and then he is whisked up. He is carried up into heaven. He has greeted them with his grace, but now he sends them out with joy and confidence and assurance. They're not filled with despair as Christ goes to heaven. They're not thinking, what do we do now that he is away from us? What do we do now that he is gone? No, they're filled with joy. They're filled with worship. They're worshiping Christ. Look at what it says at the end. They were worshiping him, Jesus. They remind us that it is better for us that Christ goes to heaven, that he might give us his spirit, and that he might reign from heaven. Our king, our king, our ultimate king. It's no, no earthly king. Our ultimate king is in heaven, reigning and ruling, bestowing gifts upon us, pouring gifts out, namely, particularly, the gift of the Spirit himself. And we can be filled with the joy and the confidence knowing that he is reigning and ruling in heaven. I'm sure many of you have purchased flowers at a grossly inflated price this week. I found this uh, quote from Samuel Rutherford. God hath made many fair flowers, and he has. Isn't it wonderful to see a bunch of different colored flowers all together, the glory of God's creation? God, God hath made many fair flowers, but the fairest of them all is heaven. 
The flower of all flowers is Christ. If you've perhaps you've purchased some this week or you've received from this week, would you remind yourself of that when you look at them throughout this, these next few days? God hath made many fair flowers, but the fairest of them all is heaven. And the flower of all flowers is Christ. You see God's people here resting in the joy and the assurance and the confidence that their king has gone into heaven. The joy and assurance that comes with knowing the truth of his work, knowing that he has been raised. And when he leaves, they're not filled with despair. They're filled with joy and confidence. There's a tough road ahead of them. Perhaps many of them know that. They probably don't know the extent to which it will be tough. But there's a tough road ahead of them. But because of what Christ has accomplished, they can take up their cross. And in the same way the church can take up its cross and follow him. All the world may leave. All the world may despise you. You have enough. Jesus is enough for he has risen and he reigns. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition. All I've sought, hoped, or known. Yet, how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this all-sufficient word. By your spirit, might you bring us to a greater understanding of it. Father, might we seek to carry forth the joy, the confidence, the assurance that you give us. Make us ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Father, that we might collectively join in this project, even as we trust in the proclamation of your word, we trust in the way that you have called us to, uh, to live this life. Strengthen us unto that calling. Make us ready, ready to meet our Savior, our Creator. We look forward to the day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Be with us today in the many things going on, Father. Comfort those who need it. Uh, and may you remind all of us the ultimate hope that we have is not here, it's not in this world, but it is in the age to come, that which Jesus has won for us by his grace. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's sing verses 1, 2, and 4.